The following podcast contains explicit language. Are you ready to make America great again? Bernie Sanders doesn't get it. Hillary Clinton doesn't get it. Barack Obama, he really don't get it. The next time we see him, we might have to kill him. Donald Trump has a lot of work to do telling us what he's going to do specifically. I continue to believe Mr. Trump will not be president. And the reason is because I have a lot of faith in the American people. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man whose Twitter account has finally been confiscated by his aides, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. This is our final show before Election Day. In the event of a Trump victory, I'll be back with several hundred more shows over the next four years. Please, please, whatever your politics, don't let that happen to me. I don't know about all of you, but I spent most of the weekend thinking about turnout and being inspired by the Mexican-Americans in Las Vegas who waited in line for hours at the Cardenas market to exercise their democratic rights. Trump said keeping the polls open for people already in line, which is what is always done everywhere, was an example of the rigged system. The chairman of the Nevada State Republican Party said the polls were kept open so that a, quote, certain group could vote. That's not a dog whistle. It's a dog bite which is how the authorities in southern states used to keep African-Americans disenfranchised when they demanded the right to vote. The suppression and intimidation of minority voters is back in a big way this year. Trump's campaign has actually bragged about it to reporters. Trump and his campaign are telling their supporters to show up at polling places in minority neighborhoods to help prevent fraud. Of course, there is no meaningful phenomenon of vote fraud in the United States. It's a non-problem. But I think everyone understands what he means. When Trump says fraud, he means voting by people who aren't white, pure and simple. On today's show, how bad is this going to be tomorrow? How much of the vote have Republican officials already succeeded in suppressing? And what will Trump and his quasi-militia try to do tomorrow? I'll be back to talk to Slate's Dahlia Lithwick about Trump's voter intimidation effort right after we do the tweets. It pays to have friends in high places like the Justice Department. Clearly, the Clintons do. Hashtag drain the swamp. Obamacare is a total disaster. Hillary Clinton wants to save it by making it even more expensive. Doesn't work. I will repeal and replace If Obama worked as hard on straightening out our country as he has trying to protect and elect Hillary, we would all be much better off. After decades of lies and scandal, crooked Hillary's corruption is closing in. Hashtag drain the swamp. Looking at Air Force One at Miami International Airport, why is he campaigning instead of creating jobs and fixing Obamacare? Get back to work for the American people. My guest today is Dahlia Lithwick. She covers the Supreme Court for Slate, where she's a senior editor. 
Hi, Dahlia. Hey there, Jacob. So you have been writing in Slate about voter suppression and voter intimidation. And I guess the first question is, how big an effort is Trump making to keep minorities and, I guess, other likely Democratic voters from turning out tomorrow? Well, I think there's two things going on. The big one that everyone knows about is that on the stump, Trump continues to say right up till this moment, uh, you know, the polls are rigged, the, there's mischief afoot, uh, things are happening. Those people, you know, right up until this week, we've heard him say, you know, oh, those long lines in Nevada, you know, in minority precincts. He doesn't say, he says, you know, the others. But those are all really evidence that there is bad, bad things afoot. The long, long lines themselves are evidence of that. And so I think he keeps using this rhetoric of, Something's going on. And, and moreover, saying to folks over and over again, you know, you need to watch, you need to go, you need to make sure. And I think that's a piece of it, that language. And then we do have these efforts by groups such as the Roger Stone uh, group that's called Stop the Steal and other groups that are kind of organizing some of that sentiment, trying to kind of foment this feeling that folks should sign up, go to these precincts, these minority precincts, and make sure things are okay. So it, it it seems like a small scale effort, but I think that it creates this atmosphere that you're going to be intimidated when you get to the polls. And that is, is in itself vote suppression. It is. I mean, I you know, we've had a slew of lawsuits just in the last week or two that have been fighting in the courts and going all the way up. In fact, there's one now pending at the Supreme Court uh, that are fighting about whether any of this amounts to real suppression, whether it amounts to intimidation. The courts have largely, I think, brushed back DNC efforts in the states to do something about it. But it does, I think, create a sense, if you think about the fact that these stories are out there, that some of these actions are being brought, for instance, under the KKK Act of 1871 uh, and the Voting Rights Act. It does create, I think, this sentiment that there really is enough going on that minorities should be afraid that suppression is happening. In other words, regardless of how the courts come out, the message is getting out there that you're going to be intimidated at the polls, so you better show up anyway. Right. I mean, suppression, like vote rigging, can mean a lot of different things. On the one hand, there's a legitimate, if unappealing, kind of voter suppression, which is trying to get the people who would support the other side to be so disgusted that they don't show up. So Trump running ads targeted at black voters saying that Hillary Clinton talked about super predators and just trying to discourage her supporters from turning out. That's that's legit. But then it shades over into the kind of intimidation where you have people showing up at polling places and trying to scare people that if they did something wrong or they left out their middle initial, maybe they can be arrested. Maybe they can be harmed in some way. That's exactly right. And it's important to remember the RNC is still under a consent decree from this decades old lawsuit that really involved, you know, off duty police officers at polling places, scaring voters. You know, there was a, a suit filed just last week in New Jersey by the DNC saying, you know, the RNC can't do this kind of stuff. The question in that suit turns on whether they are coordinating with the Trump campaign enough that you can 
blame the RNC for what Trump is doing. And that suit actually, again, was kicked away. So I think that you're quite right that there is this thing called voter intimidation. It's a little fuzzy what it is. But certainly, I think if you're showing up at polling places, particularly if you're not a registered poll watcher in a lot of jurisdictions, and you're taking photos of people or you're demanding to see their papers, uh, that is in violation of, you know, various federal federal statutes. It's in violation of the consent decree. And so I think the problem really is how do you stop it in advance of it happening? And that's why some of these lawsuits look like Hail Mary's, Jacob, where they're saying we want the federal courts to stop voter intimidation. And that's just too vague. Can you give a little capsule legal history? Because I think people who know civil rights law understand this, but the rest of us are a little foggy on it. I mean, under the Voting Rights Act, states had to prove for a long time that if they were going to change the law, that it basically didn't have an effect. If they were changing uh, voting law, it didn't have the effect of disenfranchising minorities. But now they don't have to prove that or they don't have to prove it in the same way or most of them are done with the consent decree. I mean, just tell the story of what happened here. Right. This is, I think, the signal moment for this election. This will be the first election where those states that were called preclearance states under the Voting Rights Acts, those are any state that had a history of using uh, the voting system to suppress minority turnout. They had to get clearance um, from the federal government or from the courts before they could enact big, big changes in their voting system. And you're right. After 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court decides the Shelby County case, they say we're doing away with this preclearance requirement. And they're, in fact, doing it uh, because they want to preserve the, quote, dignity of the states, right? It's embarrassing. It's awkward. You know, states don't want to be tarred with this history of vote suppression. And so the court just scuttles that section of the act and says, you don't need to seek preclearance from the government. And of course, immediately states like Texas and North Carolina that had been preclearance state go ahead and enact, sometimes within days, Jacob, enact all these very, very onerous either voter ID laws or other laws, and there's nothing to check them now. And so this is the first election after Shelby County. This is the first presidential election where in some of those states, some of those laws have gone into effect. And the heart of the act, which said these states can't make these changes without a check, is gone. And the other thing I think that's important is that the federal government had historic election monitors that would sort of fan out and make sure that those preclearance states were not uh, doing anything wonky at the polls. The federal government this year, for the first time, massively constrained both the number of election monitors that they would send out and also the authority of those election monitors, again, saying Shelby County doesn't allow us to do that. And so I think, you know, if the aggregate effect of Shelby County is there's no mechanism by which the states that are changing their election laws can be examined with careful scrutiny and also that there are fewer federal watchers out there at the polls, then really what you're looking at, I think, is for the first time in decades, a lot of states saying, hey, let's try some new stuff, too, because nobody's watching. Right. So there's what the states are doing, and then there is what the Trump campaign and maybe the RNC are doing. Talk about the states a little more. I mean, which states post this Shelby County decision, passed laws that really look like they were designed to constrain turnout voting by minorities. And what were those laws? 
Well, I think the big, big ones that went to the court, went through the court system was uh, a Texas law that was described as, you know, one of the most onerous voter ID laws we'd ever seen in the country. But the one that's probably most notable is the one that comes up through North Carolina. And this is a law that the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, when they reviewed, and again, it's a whole uh, panoply of, of restrictions that includes voter ID, that says, you know, that, that constrains student voting, that uh, tries to constrain Sunday voting and early voting. Uh, and the whole thing in the aggregate, says the Fourth Circuit, looks as though it was surgically designed to suppress minority voting. In other words, if you reverse engineer what the Republican Party was doing to create those restrictions, we even have emails that show, hey, how could we, you know, make sure that there's uh, less uh, Sunday voting? What could we do to make sure? So the Fourth Circuit says this is just an appalling uh, effort post Shelby County to suppress minority voting. But here's where it gets interesting. A lot of these cases, as they come up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and we have to remember now, we have a 4-4 court, right? Yeah. Shelby County was a 5-4 decision. Antonin Scalia, now deceased, was in the majority. And so really, I think, if there's a takeaway from all these state efforts to suppress the votes and even the raft of of uh, filings that we've seen in the last week or two. It's that the U.S. Supreme Court can't possibly have a Bush v. Gore moment, that they are, to the extent that they're being called upon to adjudicate some of these last-minute efforts, absolutely hamstrung. And we've seen right now, as I'm talking to you, there's a Sixth Circuit uh, decision in one of these intimidation cases that has now been sent to the U.S. Supreme Court this weekend. How a 4-4 court can possibly weigh in on a any of these really is, I think, not just sort of the defining mystery of this election, but I think really highlights why we need nine justices on the court. You're right. It's worth noting that Bush v. Gore now would be a 4-4 decision, i.e. no decision. It might even be worse than that because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's comments in July. Remember when she kind of went off script and started trashing Donald Trump to the press in not one, but yeah. several interviews. I think there's a real groundswell of feeling that if one of these cases went up to the court, she might have to recuse herself for intemperate comments she made about one of the parties in the suits last July. So this actually could be, if you want to play out, gut-wrenching nightmare scenarios. This could be a 4-3 <laughs> with Ginsburg forced to recuse. Or maybe it'll be 3-2 by the time we get to that. But what happened with this North Carolina case? So you said the Fourth Circuit said that the basically throughout this North, North Carolina law designed to restrict voting, that got appealed. What happened? Uh, some part of it was actually uh, reinstated by the court. Some part of it, uh, the court allowed the, the Fourth Circuit, some of it to stand. But I think, again, what you're seeing at the high court when these cases and some of these cases were coming up to the Supreme Court uh, over the summer and early fall, the Supreme Court, if it has one lodestar in these election cases, it's typically don't change things right before an election. And we just saw the Supreme court this weekend, again, Badaway in Arizona uh, case, I think, again, on the principle that we can't be fixing things now. So even if some of these things are suppressive, even if some of them are vague, we're not going to make changes in the days and hours before an election. So in the case of the Fourth Circuit, uh, the court did uh, uphold part of it, strike down a part of it. But I think that the general 
general feeling you're going to get from the high court at this point is we would rather let this get worked out in the state courts, even if justice isn't being done, or get worked out in the federal uh, appeals courts, the federal uh, district courts, because for the court to get involved at this point is to create even more mayhem. There was a particularly outrageous thing in Indiana that was reported, I don't know, about a month or, or several weeks ago, where these organizations that were trying to register voters were raided under suspicion that they were in some way trying to perpetrate a voter fraud. I think it's of a piece with this larger sense, and it's something that is dispiriting in the extreme, is sort of goes back to what I was saying about Trump's comments about the long lines in Nevada. And I think the feeling is that Anything that is done to increase minority turnout is per se illegitimate, that that is part of this project of vote fraud. You know, don't forget, this is Donald Trump again saying, you know, these people, they're voting 10 times. They're voting in the name of dead people. And here's where I have to say the obligatory disclaimer, because I think we sometimes think, Jacob, that we live in a country where vote fraud is rampant. And the best study that was done on this was by Professor Justin Levitt in 2014 when he was at Loyola that showed that there were a total of 31 credible claims from over a billion ballots cast since 2000, 31 <laughs> claims of legitimate vote fraud. So, you know, which the, the isn't even of, statistically significant. I mean, statistically, that's zero. It's zero. And again, I'll say it again because I say it and say it and folks st- still think that Mickey Mouse is voting uh, at a precinct near you uh, with his big ears. But the chance of being hit by a lightning bolt are vastly higher than the vast than the possibility of vote fraud. And yet I think they've done such a deaf an effective campaign around the idea that Democrats, you know, vote out of precinct, that there are busloads of them, and they, uh, you know, all of this Sunday voting is just per se illegitimate. And I think that they have really tapped into this anxiety. It's this deeply, deeply racial anxiety uh, that minority voters, when they any get out the vote, any registration effort, any uh, attempt to hold polling places open for hours because people have stood in line for hours, those are by definition fraudulent operations. And it's just an incredibly worrisome proposition. I would say one other thing, just as a an aside, that one of the suits, the Hail Mary suits that failed uh, for the GOP this weekend uh, involved an attempt in Pennsylvania to get out of district poll watchers to be allowed to go into Philadelphia. The GOP wanted to say, even if it's not your precinct, you can go into Philadelphia and monitor the polls and a judge kicked that away. But I think it is of a piece with this notion that sort of white rural voters need to go into the city and protect the integrity of the ballot. And as you say, you know, there's there's just no evidence that that fraudulent voting is happening. It's tapping into something far more pernicious. Well, you heard Trump at this rally in Nevada over the weekend where he referring to these long lines. I guess they extended early voting at this uh, Latino grocery store where, they, where there was the, the huge moving turnout that went late in the night. And he's essentially saying that allowing people to vote is fraudulent, that the only fair thing to do would be to prevent people who are legitimate voters from voting. That's right. And as I say, it's of a piece with this long, long historical trend. You can go back to poll taxes. You can go back further to, you know, what even then 
you know, now we call him uh, Chief Justice or the former Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist. But, you know, when he was an election watcher, he was charged with the same proposition of intimidating uh, minority voters in Arizona. So I think it's just this is a long, long, long story with a long, ugly history. It's the reason that the KKK Act of 1871 is being litigated again. It's the reason that the Voting Rights Act from the Civil Rights Era is, you know, in these court papers. And it's because this is a longstanding tendency to say, by definition, when minority voters vote, there's something hinky going on. And so I think part of what is so depressing about this conversation is it goes back decades, 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 and we don't seem to be able to shake off this language of it's okay when white people vote, but it's not okay when people of color do it. Dahlia, the risk of giving a hostage to fortune, what do you think tomorrow is actually going to look like at the polls? Do you think this is mainly rhetoric on Trump's part and a way for him to claim that the election was rigged? Or do you think we're going to see a lot of people, Trump supporters, showing up at these urban polling places and trying in whatever way to intimidate people? It's a great question, Jacob. I asked it of Wendy Weiser of the Brennan Center last week on the Amicus podcast. She said she thinks that uh, the notion that all these armed poll watchers are going to show up and terrorize people are overblown. Uh, I will note there was somebody open carrying at an early voting station uh, this week in Virginia. So there will be some outliers. But in some sense, I think the real lesson of all these lawsuits that I'm talking about just in the last week or two, is that the word is getting out there in a sense, merely having the media say the words, the KKK Act has been invoked, the Voting Rights Act has been invoked. The fact that the message getting out there is, A, this is intimidation, whether courts can enjoin it or not is immaterial. And B, I think galvanizing minority voters, I think there's nothing that will get out the minority vote quite as powerfully as hearing that there are people in the Trump campaign trying to keep you from voting. We know how that's played out. In prior presidential elections. So my sense is that uh, what you are going to get is long lines. You're going to get really, really long lines. And that is, by definition, vote suppressive. But it seems to me that there will be a couple of outliers. But if the message around these lawsuits has been that even though the courts can't stop it, it's still illegal, uh, I think you're going to see less of this than we expected. And I think you are, on the other hand of the scale, going to see a vast increase in enthusiasm and interest from minorities who are starting to hear that, wait, there are operations in the Trump campaign that are going to try to intimidate them on voting day. So I think it may net out to the benefit of Hillary Clinton. Which is inspiring because nothing makes people want to vote like the idea that other people are trying to stop them from voting. I think that's exactly right. We've seen that happen, and I think you're going to see it continue to happen. I think that some of these federal courts are in a tricky situation when they're told to put into place an injunction to stop something that is half-promised but not fully realized from the Trump campaign. That is a hard thing to enjoin. But I think that knowing that the courts are monitoring this, that there are courts around the country who are already looking at pleadings, they're listening to what Roger Stone has said, they're looking at what his groups are doing, that there is a machine in place that's kind of ready to pounce should anything go awry tomorrow. I think that's going to both, as I said, scare some of those poll watchers into staying home, but much more pointedly, I think, inspire folks to say, 
they can't tell me not to vote, not in 2016. So, Dahlia, this is my last pre-election Trump cast. And uh, I've definitely, we've on the show, definitely done our share of contributing to doom and gloom. I just wonder, I'd like to end end this run on a little bit of a positive note. Can you see something good that's come out of this election? What, what If you learned anything this year that you feel positive about? I'll tell you what, I'm going to just have to plug a little project we did at the very end of last week where we um, spoke to six new Americans who had just been naturalized in the last couple of months, Jacob. I'm glad you mentioned and this because this thing is so great. And I, I was listening to it over the weekend and it really is inspiring. But go on, explain, explain about the new Americans. It, it, it really was um, just an attempt to talk to six people who will be voting for the first time. And uh, we talked to several of them over the course of a few weeks. And some of the days I was talking to them, I was just beside myself over the toxicity of this election. And I have to tell you, 201, and some of these people came from refugee camps in Syria. One of them walked from Honduras and was here illegally for a long time. I mean, these are not folks who had easy lives where they came from. And 201, they would say, I'm so glad to be here. I haven't seen the stuff you're talking about. I'm sure there are some racists out there and some people who don't want me here and people who want to build walls. But I have unfailingly been met by generosity and big hearted welcome. I mean, you listen to these folks and you almost don't recognize this glowing America that they describe. But for them, it's like a magical place where their dreams can come true. And I have to say, there's been a lot about this election that has disconcerted me and frightened me. But those interviews and listening to these people even when you press them saying, aren't you scared? They're just not because they've seen real totalitarianism. They've seen real racial hatred. They don't believe that's the case in this country. I've been speaking to Dahlia Lithwick. She covers the Supreme Court for Slate. Dahlia, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Jacob. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. And John Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. And hey, we want to tell you about a special effort we're putting together for tomorrow. Starting at 9 a.m., Slate and Panoply will be bringing you live audio updates on the election on the hour. It's going to be hosted by the wonderful Zoe Chase of This American Life for the first part of the day and also by the wonderful Allison Stewart of the PBS NewsHour into the evening. They'll be broadcasting from our studios in Brooklyn, where I am right now. And you can find it at slate.com slash newscast. That's slate.com slash newscast. And check out Slate for lots more about the election, including our partnership with VoteCaster to share data about how people are voting before the polls close. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to TrumpCast. Today, I'm doing my tweets from Trump One. It's a fantastic plane, by the way. Really, really tremendous plane. I know planes. This is a great plane. And we're down to the final 24 hours. I'm very, very excited to be your president. It's going to be a phenomenal four, then eight years, because once I'm in, I think the people are going to absolutely love me. It's really, really going to be tremendous. And I want to thank Trump Gast 
for giving me this platform to do my tweets every day and reach even more people so they understand how crooked Hillary Clinton is. She's really crooked. And Obama running around the country campaigning for her, he is the first sitting president in the history of the United States to ever campaign for someone in his party. Terrible. Terrible. No one's ever done that before. He's wasting so much money. Really bad hombre. Bad hombre. Obama. Believe me.